Hello, my beautiful Woman Inc. listeners. Welcome back. I've missed you. We have been on a little summer hiatus and I'm so excited to be back. My incredible guest this week is Ariella Safira. Ariella is the founder and CEO of Real, a mental health care company building a new therapy model. Ariella has been passionate about improving mental health care for years. She started her career at IDEO and studied, researched, and developed new concepts to approach mental health care and mental well-being. Ariella earned a BS in mathematics and computational science from Stanford, which is really where her work began in mental health. Later, she joined Columbia's clinical psychology program to train as a therapist and left the program in 2019 to launch her company, Real. She has biked across multiple countries to fundraise for suicide prevention and is the recipient of the 2019 American Psychiatric Association's Innovation Award and was recognized as Forbes 30 Under 30 for social impact. Ariella is absolutely brilliant. I loved this conversation. I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. Mental health is something I am incredibly passionate about and I'm just so proud to have Ariella on the podcast. Now, let's get on over to my conversation with Ariella. Welcome to the Woman Inc. podcast. This is the place for the new generation of women looking to lead the life of their absolute dreams. I'm your host, Jenna Toddy, entrepreneur, life coach, and strategist for modern businesswomen and entrepreneurs. I am a city girl, sriracha lover, and that friend who will hype you up when you forget how powerful you truly are. I am on a mission to make Women Inc. the most powerful network of women who are leveling up, owning what they want, and becoming who they've always wanted to be. Have you ever wondered what it would look like if you went all in on yourself? No turning back. If so, you are in the right place, my girl. Let's get started. Ariella, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to speak with you. Of course. It's so great to meet you. Okay. So I'm like very excited about talking about mental health. I've had like the longest week of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, please tell me everything. We would need a lot longer than an hour to talk about Oh my gosh, we're going to have to condense as much as possible. But first, I kind of just want to go back. You have an amazing background. I want to just kind of rewind for the listeners your background and what you were kind of up to before starting Real. Of course. So Real is a mental health care company uh, and we founded it about two and a half years ago, though I personally have worked in mental health care for about the past nine years, never as a practicing clinician, always on the innovating side of things. Um, And I became very passionate about it while I was an undergrad uh, at Stanford when a friend of mine had attempted to take her life. And that was the first time I had ever experienced any of the mental health care system. It was the first time I'd ever seen a rehab and inpatient mental health facility. And I thought the system made no sense. Um, one of the biggest issues was that the first time she had ever met a mental health specialist, when she attempted to take her life and that felt far too late, right? So I, I basically threw myself at the system. And in the beginning, it wasn't coming from a place of trying to start a company. It was really, it came from a place of curiosity and disappointment um, and a great interest to figure out how are we making these decisions. So I got in touch with David Kelly, who's the founder of IDEO, a really phenomenal design firm. We hit it off and ended up spending two years working together on how can we redesign mental health care. I actually left college. I thought I would drop out entirely to build real. 
So David convinced me that if I want to change healthcare without a medical degree, it's going to be tough. If I want to do it without a bachelor's, good luck. So I came back and I finished up. So I studied math and computer science, so a very different discipline. And after college, I went over to IDEO New York to continue working on how can we redesign mental health care. And then went to Liverpool, England to work at what's considered the most innovative mental ward in the world to see what do they do that's so innovative and how can we replicate that here. And then I um, joined uh, Sidewalk Labs, Google's company, Design the Future City, their care lab uh, to work on redesigning care. And the team was already working on uh, CityBlock, a phenomenal healthcare company building a new model of care for the Medicaid, Medicare population. So joined, stayed for a while, and uh, then biked across a few countries to fundraise for suicide prevention and ultimately thought, I've seen every mental health care model and none of them work, right? And not in the like clinical diagnosis sense, but in the real world, like when I look around, so many people I know and love are struggling and would never engage with therapy, with psychiatry, right? I look around at my family and no one would ever see a therapist. And when I have struggled really traumatically in my own life, I never thought to engage with care, right? And I at least pretty well versed in what it all looked like. Um, so I left to join Columbia's clinical psych program to train to be a therapist to really better understand what does that side of the world look like. And while there, just developed um, a much greater understanding of what does it look like to build a career in therapy and a much greater empathy for how difficult that is for therapists, right? And so often when we name issues, the mental health care system, we really pin them all on the therapist, right? How expensive they are, how little availability there is. And my time there just made it so clear and I really empathize with like the, the problem isn't the therapist not caring or not trying. It's just systemically, this is not going to be the solution, right? We don't have enough clinicians. We don't equip clinicians with the tools to really build a better system. Um, one-on-one therapy is always, honestly, I believe should always be expensive. A therapist's time is worth the, the amount they charge. The problem is just like, that's a high cost for an individual to pay week after week. Um, so I left the program at Columbia. I successfully dropped out this time to found real. And, uh, I, uh, brought on my former professor from Stanford to, uh, come on and be our chief medical officer. And together we jumped into the world of, uh, real. You are so cool. You know that quote, if he wanted to, he would. No, but I love that. Okay. So it's like a dating quote, but you're reminding me of like, you're making me think of if you want to, you can like you. (laughs) (laughs) I I love hearing that. Yeah. It's just like, you seem, I love this. It's just like, this is what I want to do. Let's figure out how to do it. Like very pragmatic. I uh, appreciate hearing that. Maybe I'll reuse that <laughs> quote. I'm sorry, you're, you're walking with me. It's a Friday evening and we're doing this. So on a journey. <laughs> me on this journey as my entire house is beeping. Okay. So I'm ready to jump in. I love it. Let's dive into real. So how did you decide first to do an app? And then what was like apps? I feel like they you need a lot of skills that an average person doesn't have, or you need to hire a lot of people that can do development work for you. Can you walk through? Well, like, I, I have no skills. My best <laughs> skill is that I know how to find the most talented humans on the planet and bring them together. And they really deserve all the credit of Real. Um, but how we decided to do an app. Interestingly enough, Reels' first round of funding was built to support a brick and mortar location. So first round of funding was uh, led by female founders fund, Anu Dugal. And that was built to support this membership model in a brick and mortar. Uh, the first one would be in New York City. We built a phenomenal team, built an incredible brick and mortar um, that looks and feels so dramatically different than what is like this 
stigma behind therapy today. And all of it was set to open in April 2020 in New York City. And COVID hits and completely ruins that plan. But it ended up being probably the single best thing to happen to our company. Um, it really... Pretty immediately, we anticipated mental health needs are going to skyrocket. We have to put something up now. And so we built what was meant to be a one-month offering of care, all delivered for free in both one-on-one and group format. And it was a huge success. Um, we were you know, early stage startup. Your bank account was getting closer and closer to $0. No money to spend on ads. And this is not making any money either. It was truly a quickly altruistic endeavor. And we had, what, about 10,000 people on our wait list, 2,000 people go through the program. And far more excitingly, we learned things we would have never learned in person, mainly that everyone prefers group over one-on-one and just that they want to join group anonymously with their videos off and their names hidden. And so we really did further research there and just saw like there's just this amazing power of hearing other people's stories that has a dramatic impact on individuals. And the role that the, the magic a therapist brings to that room is guiding people through that conversation and really filling the gaps that an individual story might not um, do on their own. But the real thing somewhat for the vast majority of people, especially when you look outside of the, the bubbles of New York City and LA and San Francisco and probably Miami, um, when you look outside of those bubbles, for the vast majority of people, we were never trained how to talk about our relationship with our bodies, right? Ask your average American how how they feel about their childhood and their childhood trauma. And they probably won't have much of an answer beyond not great or fine, right? And that's because we don't teach people how to work through these issues, how to talk through these issues. And so I think that's also why for the majority of people, they go to a therapy appointment and they never go back because they say, I didn't get anything out of it. So I was never taught how to talk for 45 minutes about my feelings. And the real thing we need is to learn from others and to be guided through that journey. And I think there's some phenomenal care models that have really um, championed this. Uh, AA being probably one of the more notable or well-known ones. We really took that learning and ran with it. And that's when we scaled our digital membership. That's when we realized the power of digital is not in just putting one-on-one therapy online. I don't think that's very magical or different, but rather like we really have the ability to meet people at their step zero. We have the ability to meet people before they're ready to talk about this out loud, before they're, they have the language for it, um, but might be feeling it and are probably feeling it. And that requires building a different kind of care model. And that's how we started building up what we call our pathway experience and a much more human forward, human design take on care. Oh, so good. And how, I mean, first of all, I feel like everyone I talk to is like very stressed. (laughs) Everyone is struggling. Yes. (laughs) And it seems like more and more, especially a lot of like Gen Z, like younger generation, I feel like it's just really hard. And this world is moving really fast. What are some tips that you have to just really like get back in your power and feel calm and just kind of like start to get in a good mental space? So I'm going to focus on like younger demographics here, Gen Z specifically, since you named them. And I think it's important to name that part of what makes life and truly the mental health of the Gen Z population different is the like digital first social media driven world they were born into. And this means like their brains were trained under these wildly information inundated, fast moving 
expectations. And on top of that, they broadcast their successes more than their failures probably on the internet as well and are measured by likes, etc. and reshares. I think this is very hard, but I, I, I do believe the stimulation of social media is more overwhelming than any human mind can take. And my probably first very tactical recommendation, if you will, non-clinical, but my own, mm-hmm. yeah. is to build time in your calendar to be off of it. And that means like, let's delete that Instagram, let's delete TikTok, let's delete Snapchat. Even if at first it's just an evening a week, right? Building in like, I, I truly believe that rest has to come with not anticipating pings, right? It's less about once you're on it and consciously commenting on someone else's posts. It's instead this living in a constant environment of anticipation that I might get a new update. I might get a like. And it really is comparable to, or I would argue it's really comparable to adults in the workplace anticipating emails or anticipating slacks. And there's a really, really important difference between the two. One, adults are paid for that work. And two... (laughs) It, it turns off for the most part, right? There is a clear expectation that come, you know, come 7 p.m., 6 p.m., maybe 8 p.m. if you're in New York, that you, no one is paying you, right? You do have a sensation of it turning off, whereas social media does not. And so I would recommend the Gen Z population and really everyone to build the same structure around social media like we do work. Let there be an on time and an off time. And respect if like in order for that to come to life, you have to delete it off your phone, delete it. I delete Instagram off my phone at least six and a half days a week. It is only redownloaded when I need to repost something often for work. Otherwise it is deleted. And I follow maybe 80 people on it and do not follow anyone whose life I don't engage with on a regular basis. Like I think we really need to build those boundaries for ourselves. And I made it really hard for younger demographics to do that because we started, you know, inundating them with social media at such a young age. Yeah. You were at one point building a startup and that is a ton of work. Everyone knows it's like the typical don't sleep. You're going nonstop. How do you feel like growing a mental health startup? You had to be different because you kind of, I'm sure, trying to like practice what the app is giving people. How do you build a startup without going insane? (laughs) I would love to know. (laughs) Being very honest, it is difficult. (laughs) um, It's important to name that truth. It's really difficult. I think that it starts with surrounding yourself with people and that is employees and investors alike who you can genuinely trust. And I say that because for so many founders, for so much of the journey, you feel, I believe you feel so responsible for everything. And you don't actually practice trust. Even if you say you you do, like you don't act... Practicing trust means saying, I'm not going to co-own everyone's work. I'm going to really allow this... I'm going to trust this person's going to do what is needed, even if I don't know what is needed. And that's just as true with employees as it is investors. And I think that builds a much stronger company and a much better version of you. And yet founders are really not taught that. So I think that's one. And two is building your support system outside of work. I think that like I'll say for my own mental health, it really did crumble the first, probably first year of real, maybe first two. And the irony of running a mental health care company and, and that happening is um, 
I recognize. Uh, and I, I think I'm fortunate to have friends outside of Rio who can name when like, you know, we're losing you. And I was lucky to have that in my support system and have folks who can name, wow, we're like really lost the energy and drive of Ariella. Like it's all going to work and you need to be living and breathing here too. And I think that is so critical. So having the people in your life who you can trust to call that out, who know you well enough to call it out and who you trust to call it out. And that requires giving them permission to is so critical. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. It worked out though. No, and I think it's it is ironic, but it's also I would think so expected because it doesn't make you it doesn't take away the stresses or make anything less difficult when you're just because you're studying this. That is that is very very true. Even early on I am um, one of our first ever investors, Andy Dunn, he's the founder of Bonobos and most recently wrote and published a book called Burn Rate about his own mental health journey while building Bonobos and shared very intimate and traumatic experiences related to his own mental health deterioration during that time. And one of the first things he said to me when I met him for the first time when pitching real was call me on your darkest days. Mm. And that is, I think him naming that, I had never really heard, despite being a mental health care founder, hearing someone preemptively name, like there are going to be hard days, made me feel like more equipped and seen, heard. And then to say, call me during them, just really made me feel supported. And he has been the person I've called on those dark days. I love that. That's amazing. Okay, so walk Anna, us you can through. call me on your hardest days. Oh, I love I'm going to. Ariella, you're gonna get a call for sure. It might be tomorrow. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so walk us through the framework, if you will, of real. Just what the kind of like user experience would be for someone who downloads that. Yes. Yeah, so we are on a mission to make mental wellness an essential part of well-being. And that means making mental health care part of your everyday, just like fitness is, just like waking up and brushing your teeth is. And how that is coming to life today is we offer a monthly membership model where folks join uh, via their iPhone or their Android and they get access to care at you know $15 a month. And what comes with that is monthly mental health tracking and then a suite of um, both on-demand and live group therapy products and services. And the on-demand part, that includes both pathways and moments. Pathways are these eight-week on-demand therapy journeys that look and feel like a Peloton class might, right? We have a pathway on how to form a better relationship with your body image. We have a pathway on improving your communication relationships. We have one on depression, et cetera. And really through that eight-week journey, each session is a therapist walking you through, let's say you're in the body image pathway. Session one walks us through, where does our perception of body image come from? And Maddie Lucas, the therapist who leads it, will in session have you think through, you know, think back to the first time you can remember your parent or guardian talk about their own body image, right? What, what words do you remember them saying? And now how does that compare to like how we talk about our own bodies today? And Basically, in this format, we allow people to engage when and where they want because it's on demand. And for most people, that tends to be not 1 p.m. on a Monday, but much more likely 11 p.m. on a Thursday, right? One o'clock in the morning on a Friday. And uh, week by week, we, we progress through the pathway. And what we've proven is that has really phenomenal results in terms of depression and anxiety reduction. And then outside of pathways, we have moments, and moments are much shorter form and meant to meet you in meet, meant to meet you in the moment. And so that might be 
when you're spiraling after a hard meeting at work, right? When you're just woke up from an awful nightmare, when you're about to grab a drink and you don't want to, when you've just lashed out at your family. Um, and really what we're bringing to light is the human experience, right? Something so unique about mental health care is that it does show up every day. But so often care does not, right? More often than not, care is something we engage with for one hour a week for maybe five weeks, then we drop off. There's a very small population of people in America who might engage with one-on-one therapy weekly for weeks or months on end. For most people, they'll never see a therapist. And for some people, they'll see them for a few times. But we need care always, right? It's showing up in so many different ways. And the goal of our care model and our membership is to build different forms of care that meets people when and where they need it. Yeah, so, so good. I do therapy once a week. And in between, I'm just like saving things for her. I'm like, oh, I'm going to remember <laughs> this for Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is so good because it, it is true. Like by the time I get there, I'm like, oh my God, I need I have so much to talk about where it, it really does need to be a daily practice. It does. And it's not so like, it's, it's just a different experience from, I, I make, I, it's so important for me to say, I think there's tremendous validity to one-on-one therapy. It's that we need care in different formats throughout our lives. And also we simply don't have enough clinicians in this country to offer one-on-one therapy, even to 90% of Americans. Like we are dramatically under-resourced uh, when it comes to therapists and we need to build a solution that's more scalable, more affordable, given how unfortunately awful our mental health rates are. Yeah. Are you able to see like, How do you get feedback to find out how people are doing through that? So we measure progress in a few ways. Um, Those measures include the PHQ-9, which is a measure of depression, the GAD-7, which is a measure of anxiety, and those are both captured monthly. And then outside of that in... um, IRB approved studies, just our way of saying legitimate studies, <laughs> uh, which in this health tech world seems to be needed to name. We also measure uh, general health, three different measures that are built to measure proactive care or preventative care and one's ability to prevent crisis. And that includes uh, mental health literacy, general help seeking. And the third round thing I have the right name for, so I'm not going to try naming it, but the point is we're, we're building a model that is meant to prevent crisis. And so not only do we measure someone's depression if we're reducing depression, but also are we preventing them from reaching that moment of crisis, which requires having the language to name what they're going through, having the confidence to ask for care when needed, and having the knowledge of knowing where is that, where can I find that care? And that's how we measure mental health progress. Yeah. So when people join the app and they're going through this, right, how... Do you notice, do you guys have data on like men versus women? Like, are there clear differences of the struggles that people are going through by gender? Yeah. So I think what's really fascinating here is not only are there clear differences between the struggles, there's clear differences between how they engage with care, what times of the day they engage with care and what they're almost care journey looks like. So what's their front door to care versus what are they doing day 10, day 20, day 30? I think that level of granularity has not been studied before. You just haven't had the resources in mental health care to figure that out. And what's really interesting is, you know, something we found is, for example, men are far more likely to engage with care during the working days, whereas women are more likely to do it after the working hours at home. Um, And that ranges based on the topic they focused on, um, whether it's communication relationships or depression and anxiety, when someone's willing to engage with care dramatically varies. The type of care they engage with dramatically varies something. Though I think a really beautiful thing that's come to light at Real is 
so often in mental health care, we assume, one, this is for women, it's not for men. Wrong. Uh, and two, that... Um, I don't know that men just want to talk about sports. Yeah. Right, jobs. Right. And, you know, transparently speaking, we have a huge crisis amongst mental health and men. And so often that crisis lends itself to things like substance use. Um, and I, I name that because it's a really deadly place to turn to. And yet we don't often package it in the same conversation as mental health, even though it is definitely the same conversation. And when you think about like, how do I get, you know, men who live not in New York City or LA, but maybe, you know, men who are living in Arkansas or Missouri who are turning to alcohol in moments of self-doubt, how do I get them to engage with care? And what's the language I need to use? And maybe, yeah, maybe the, the language isn't, you know, I'm depressed. Maybe it's I'm angry, right? But like the inner trauma, I do think, I think the human experience, the human journey is consistent across all individuals. Like we all experience self-doubt. We all panic. We all don't feel like we're enough. The language we use might be different, but that human experience is consistent. And I've seen it at real. I've seen it in conversations with people I love, people I've met. Um, And I think it's so critical that we're building in mental health care that we remember that human part. (laughs) And I don't think we've gotten there yet with mental health care. Yeah, completely agree. What is something that you're most excited about for the future of real? I'm so excited for 2023. (laughs) We have made strides. Um, Honestly, the past two months alone, um, but really over the course of the entire year, I think it's... We're still such a new company. We launched in 2020 and the team has worked so tremendously hard and so enthusiastically. And next year, we have some really exciting launches coming that result in us scaling real in really exciting ways and bringing real to new folks and demographics. And you know, I, I love real. I love our mission. I love what we're bringing to life. And when I think about us in 5 years and 10 years, I think about a world where you know adults parents are using real and talking about it with their children and teenagers are using real and kids are using real. And there's a family plan, you know, that helps. It's something I so deeply believe is that mental health care or mental health is so relational. There, There is no just like I in isolation. There is I with parent and I with romantic partner and I with friend and child, et cetera. And if we really want to build a system that improves mental health in America, we need care to support that, right? We need like, what is the care experience when, like, within the family dynamic, within the workplace dynamic? And we have some exciting concepts coming to life. And I trust in five years and 10 years, we're going to have even more innovative ones. And I can't wait. It's so exciting. I feel like it would be so cool to have access. So I'm thinking of my team, right? To be able to see data. And like, obviously it's private and proprietary, but like being able to see the overall rating of how your team's mental health is doing. Like that would be interesting. (laughs) Like they're struggling with this or this. And I think that would really help me lead them is like, you don't know what anyone's going through. I, I very much agree. Jenna, if you can get, if you can learn one mental health thing about America, it's through real thing. What would you want to know? So the way my brain works is very like outcome driven. Like I'm very pragmatic. And so for me, I just want to know like, what can I do to help someone when they're struggling? And that's really hard because like you said, sometimes it's too late. So like, I think proactive ways of like figuring out where everyone is at. And I I love data. Like I think the more data we have on people, the more we can help. Uh, obviously in a safe way, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, I think that just like 
if I knew what was going on and I had more transparency over how people were feeling, that would be, I think, really helpful for me as a friend, as a boss, like all of the things. I love that. Yeah. Let's try to get it. <laughs> that would be that would be amazing. Imagine Google like being able to rate the mental health of their employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. We got to improve that mental health. Too. <laughs> okay. So last question, which is a question that I ask everyone, what would be your number one piece of advice for a woman who is wanting to start her own business? Do it. <laughs> Do it. You have nothing to lose. Nothing yeah. to lose. Jump in. You are losing more by not doing it. And that is my advice for women and for men. Like, yeah. And for non-binary folks. Jump in, Absolutely. try it. There are only ways to grow, only ways to learn. Yeah. And also call me on your darkest days. And call Ariella on your darkest days. <laughs> we'll link her number. <laughs> yeah, Become a hotline. Oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so lovely to meet you. And everyone go download this app. I'm going to download it immediately. (laughs) It was so great to meet you, Jenna. I hope to see you uh, next time I'm down south. Yes, please. When you move, become my neighbor. (laughs) I'll let you know. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Amazing. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode and are feeling so fired up to go out there and create that business or side hustle that's been on your to-do list, you know, a little bit longer than you care to admit. It is never too late to make the first step towards the life you want more than anything else. If you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep becoming the woman of your wildest dreams.